Hello, my name is J.P. Moreland, and I'm professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University in Southern California in the United States. I'd like to tell you this hour about my own conversion to Jesus and my attempt to be his disciple as best I know how. I was born in a small town in the Midwest in the United States, and my parents were good people, but they did not know the Lord. Still, they took me to church, uh, but the church was not a church that preached the gospel. It was what we call a liberal church, and they viewed Jesus as a good man, a good moral teacher, but they did not believe that he was the Son of God, and they did not believe that he had died for the sins of the world. So I attended church as a young boy. I was taught that Jesus was a good man. I tried to obey some of his moral teachings. Uh, but that was about the extent of my interest in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, when I was seven years old, my father passed away, and that left a huge hole in my heart. I watched as the other little boys around me would uh, do various activities with their father, but I didn't have a dad to play with or to take me places, and there was a large hole in my life. Eventually, I went to college as a, an 18-year-old, and I majored in chemistry at the university, and it was my third year at the university when I met some people that were actually followers of Jesus Christ. That may be hard for you to believe, but America is not really a Christian nation. Uh, there are many, many people in the United States who know nothing about Jesus, and I was one of them. As I began to listen to this man speak, I became convinced that Jesus Christ was an interesting person that I should investigate. And so I began to meet with this man after he spoke. I met with him on a weekly basis for several weeks, and I asked questions. And eventually, after a period of about six weeks, I became convinced uh, that Jesus Christ was the Son of the living God. One of the things that convinced me was an argument that he gave me. The argument went something like this. He told me that Jesus Christ was not a legend, that there was evidence that the New Testament documents, including the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were historically reliable pieces of information about the teachings and the deeds and the character of Jesus Christ. So that Jesus' statements were not legendary, Jesus really said the things that the Gospels ascribed to him. But, he went on to say, Jesus Christ claimed that he was God, that he was the very incarnation of God having come to earth to die for the sins of the entire world. Jesus Christ's claims, he said, were either true or they weren't true. If Jesus Christ wasn't really God, then he was either a liar because he knew he wasn't God, and he lied about it, or he was a lunatic, he was insane. He actually believed he was God, but he really wasn't. It was obvious to me that Jesus Christ was not insane. His teachings were too sound. When he died on the cross, as in his final minutes on this earth, he did something to make sure that his mother was taken care of. An insane person doesn't try to care for others while they're being executed. And Jesus' character and his teachings were too morally balanced for him to be insane. I knew that wasn't true. It was also very difficult for me to believe that Jesus Christ was a liar. 
If Jesus Christ were a liar, based on the impact of his life throughout human history, it would follow that a lie had done more good than the truth had ever done. And that made no sense to me. I couldn't believe that a person of Jesus' character and of his integrity would lie. And that left me with one alternative. Jesus of Nazareth had to be who he said he was. And I was faced at that moment with a decision. All my life I had lived largely for myself. I had lived a life that was displeasing to God in many ways. Uh, and I know that I had sinned against God and was not something that God was proud of. And yet I was not sure at that point that I wanted someone else to be the Lord of my life. I wanted to be my own Lord. But because Jesus Christ was so attractive, and because I found him to be so winsome, and because I was convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ was true, and I think that's the most important thing that happened to me, was that I became convinced that Christianity was actually true. Then I knew I had to face who Jesus was, and I had to bow my heart to him. So one week in November of 1968, I went up to the room I was living in, I closed the door, I got on my knees and I said, Lord Jesus, I now believe that you are the Son of God. I need you. I know that I have lived a life that has been displeasing to you, and I pray right now that you would forgive me of my sins, that you would come into my life, and that you would make me the kind of person you want me to be. And I ask, dear Jesus, that you would make yourself real to me. Well, at that moment, I began to experience something I had never experienced before in my life. Jesus Christ became real to me, and there was a presence that came into my life that was very, very, very real. I began to sense changes take place in my life. I began to notice, for example, that the hole that was in my heart, the emptiness that I had experienced, the fear, the sense that my life had no purpose to it, was immediately filled with his presence. And I sensed a calling on my life to know him and to love him and to serve him that gave my life a purpose, a mission that I had never known before. I began to read the New Testament and the scriptures generally. I began to grow as a Christian and I became what was called a Christian activist. I began to share my newfound faith with other people. Eventually, I became a minister and I began to serve Jesus Christ on college campuses in the United States. I would do evangelism, and then I would let that issue forth into trying to disciple new converts. And I began to experience the presence of Jesus and his miraculous guidance in my ministry. I'll never forget one incident that happened in a college campus that I was working at. It was my task to open up the Christian ministry on this college campus. To my knowledge, there were no Christian ministries, and there were three of us that were campus ministers on that, at that school. I was one of the three, and two young ladies that were working alongside of me were called to do evangelism and try to reach that campus for Christ. Our goal was to share Jesus Christ with every person on that campus so everyone would have an opportunity to say yes to Jesus Christ as we had. We decided that we would need to go speak to groups of people if we were going to accomplish our goal, 
Because while we did talk to people one-on-one about Jesus, we could accomplish our goal more effectively if we spoke to large groups of people. And so we began to seek opportunities to speak in dormitories and in other places where students lived. One afternoon, I got on my knees with my two uh, friends who were working with me, and we asked the Lord to lead us to a place where he had prepared hearts, miraculously, to come to know him. We got up off our knees, and I felt led to go ask a specific part of a woman's residence hall if we could come and speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ to the women who lived in this dormitory. The resident hall advisor was in. We went to see her, and she said, yes, you may come and speak as long as you don't make it too religious. Well, we, had, we were not particularly religious, but we were followers of Jesus. So this was the very first meeting that we had ever held on that campus. I went and I gave a presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there were about 50 young women who were in attendance in that meeting. After we were finished, I gave the young ladies an opportunity to come and, and to believe in Jesus. We passed out little cards to give them an opportunity to check if they had said yes to Jesus Christ for the very first time. After the meeting, I was looking over the cards, and 26 out of the 50 women had become Christians. Well, I thought I had made a mistake. I thought that surely that many women had not become Christians that evening. They simply didn't understand the gospel message that I'd presented to them. It was hard for me to believe that over half of the young ladies in attendance that evening had become Christians. That is, until we began to follow them up. And sure enough, 26 out of the 26 young ladies not only became Christians that evening, but they all began to grow as Christians. They got in Bible studies. And from that one dormitory residency hall, seven young ladies went to the mission field to serve Jesus Christ. And we began from that event to experience a revolution on that campus. And in a period of 18 months, the gospel of Jesus Christ became the single most talked about message of any kind on that university campus. And it was opportunities like that and experiences of that sort that assured me that the Holy Spirit and the risen Jesus were with me as I began to seek to share my faith in him and disciple others. Over the years, I have known that Jesus Christ was alive, and I have come to grow as his follower and to experience his supernatural presence in my life in a number of other ways. For example, I have experienced a number of occasions where I have seen specific answers to prayer. One summer, I was, going, I was in California at a training seminar where I was learning how to pray. And I was getting ready to go back to Colorado, which is about 1,700 miles away, to serve Jesus Christ with college students. At that time, I was a single man. I was going to be living with another single man and serving Jesus Christ among university students at a campus in the state of Colorado. I began to pray while I was in California that when I got back to Colorado, the Lord Jesus would provide me a place to live 
that would be a little white house with a nice white fence in front of it, with a lovely grassy front yard. I asked the Lord that it would be for a certain amount of rent each month and that the house be around two miles from the college campus. And the reason I had asked the Lord for these things is because I wanted to have a nice home that was close to campus where students could come to our home and we could witness to them, we could host Bible studies, and have a ministry in a warm, inviting home atmosphere for students as they came off campus to be with us. Well, I drove to Colorado, and for three days I looked for a place to live, but I could find absolutely nothing except an apartment that was 12 miles away that rented for more money than I had asked the Lord to provide for us. I told the lady that I would take the apartment if it was still available, and she said to call her that evening. She was the apartment manager, and if it was still open, that I could have it. Well, I called that evening, and she said, I have bad news for you. We have rented the apartment to someone else, and we have no more vacancies. I'm afraid you can't live in one of our apartments. Well, I was back to square one. I was back to ground zero. I had no place to go. There was no place for me to live, and I had no opportunities uh, to find a place where my roommate and I could have a ministry. That evening, I received a phone call from a Christian worker who knew nothing about my prayer request. She said, uh, JP, are you still looking for a place to live? And I said, yes, as a matter of fact, we are. Well, she said, I know a pastor who has a place to live in the town where the college is. Here is his phone number. Call him. Well, I did. I called this pastor, and he arranged for me to meet with him the next morning at 9 o'clock at his house. He wanted to rent a house to Christians. Well, you'll never guess what happened. I drove my car up to a white house that had a lovely white fence in the front, a nice grassy front yard, two miles from campus, and the rent on the house was even less than I had asked the Lord to provide for me. This was a miraculous, specific answer to prayer at a time when we were in great particular need in our lives. But not only have I seen miraculous answers to prayer during the course of my Christian life, I've also seen examples of God's miraculous providence break in on my life and have coincidences, things that would look like a coincidence but aren't coincidences. They are God's activities in caring for me in my Christian life. Let me share one of those stories with you. In 2003, my family and I suffered a number of very, very severe hardships. And as a result of those hardships, I fell into a period of very deep depression. And this period of deep depression lasted for seven months. During the time of my depression, I wasn't thinking clearly. I wasn't able to see things the way they really were. I was so dark and discouraged that I was beginning to have all kinds of fears fill my heart. One of the things that had troubled me was I be began to believe that my life as a Christian scholar 
and that my work as a Christian teacher and my efforts as a Christian author to write books defending the Christian faith, that all my efforts had been a waste of time. I began to fear that I had wasted my life, that I should have done something else, that my books and my lectures and my work as a Christian scholar had been for nothing, and that this was largely a major waste of my time. During that period of doubt and discouragement, I was asked to go speak on the east coast of the United States. I lived on the west coast, and I was asked to speak in a town called Columbia, South Carolina. I had never been to South Carolina, but I accepted the engagement. I went to speak, flew across the United States. I wasn't feeling very good because of my depression, but I was able to speak the first night of the conference. The second afternoon, I began to experience a very, very terrible time of headaches. Now, I don't get headaches, but I began to experience migraine headaches that were very, very, very severe. I called the conference director and told him that I wasn't going to be able to speak that night. We would have to cancel the meeting, and I went back to bed. I received a phone call from a person who said, we want to take you immediately to the hospital. We're afraid that you're getting sick and we want to take you to the doctor. So I went and got in his car and we drove for about one half of an hour to a tiny little town called Irmo, South Carolina. We went into the hospital. The nurse took my driver's license and I went back and they began to perform tests on me to see if there was something wrong with my heart or with my brain. As it turned out, I had eaten some bad food and it had caused me to have headaches, but I didn't know it at the time. <clears throat> they gave me an injection to calm my headache down and there was a doctor on duty that evening who came in to see me. As he walked in the door, he had my driver's license in his hand. And he said to me, are you J.P. Moreland? I said, yes, I'm, I'm he. He said, are you the J.P. Moreland who is a professor at Talbot School of Theology? And I was shocked at the question. And I said, why, uh, yes, why do you ask? And he said, I cannot believe that I have the opportunity of meeting you. And I said, Doctor, please tell me what you mean by this. He said, I have read everything that you've written. I cannot thank you enough for your teaching ministry, for your writing, and for your scholarship. He went on to say, I teach at a local non-Christian college, and I actually use one of your books as a textbook with non-Christian students. And then he said this to me, Please don't ever doubt the importance of your intellectual work for the kingdom of God, and I hope you will continue doing this kind of work from now on. And then the Lord spoke to me, because as you will recall, my depression had caused me to doubt the value of my intellectual work for the kingdom of God. And the Lord spoke to me at that moment in my mind and said, J.P., I'm proud of you. 
I am grateful to you for your faithfulness to me. I want you to continue to teach and to write and to do the things that you have done. I'm proud of you. How can you explain a coincidence like that? Why, of course, that could not have been a coincidence. In the very hour of my need, at the very time when I was beginning to doubt whether I was serving the Lord in the way He wanted me to, 3,000 miles away from my home, in a little town I had never visited before in my life, at an emergency room hospital clinic in the middle of the evening, I meet a doctor who happens to be on duty that evening who had the very answer to my struggles and my fears that I needed to hear from the Lord. That is an example of the kind of thing our precious Lord Jesus does as we walk with Him to serve Him and to make a difference for Him in the world. Jesus made a statement at the end of Matthew's Gospel when He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that was an example where Jesus Christ Himself was with me and orchestrated through His providence that I would meet this doctor who would meet my need. Since I have walked with Jesus Christ as his follower then, I have seen many cases of answers to prayer. I have seen numerous occasions where God's providence has brought events into my life at just the right time when they needed to happen to meet my need. But I have also seen cases where I have seen the miraculous power of God's kingdom come and heal the sick. This has not happened as much as I would like to see happen, but it has happened a number of occasions in my ministry, and God has been faithful. On one occasion, not long ago, I was speaking in a church as a guest speaker. That morning, a young man who was, had a, a, a brand new little baby boy and his wife had come to the church for prayer. He had just come down with a tumor in his brain. The tumor was the size of a softball in the United States. It was about that big around. And it was in his brain, filling a region of his brain, placing pressure on his brain. The doctors were afraid it had cancer in it, and he was going to be operated on the next morning, Monday morning after church. So he came for prayer. And I asked if I could have the privilege of praying for him. I called the elders around. We gathered around him. I laid my hands on the back of his head. And I said, in the name of Jesus, I command you, tumor, to shrink in the name of Jesus. And I prayed that this cancer would be gone. And I prayed that this tumor would not be attached to this young man's brain so that if they remove it, it will not harm his brain. And I began to pray and speak to the tumor in the name of the kingdom of God. The next morning, the young man went in for surgery. I got a phone call from his wife because during the surgery, the tumor had shrunk from being this big down to the size of a little nut. It was not cancerous. It was not attached to his brain. It was a minor surgery to remove the small little tumor that was left in his brain, and he was back to work within four days. 
This was an example of a tumor shrinking in the name of the risen Jesus and in the power of his kingdom. And so I have learned in walking with Jesus Christ that he's very, very much alive, that he loves me, and that he promised never to leave me. And I've seen this through answers to prayer, through special actions of his providence, and through occasions where I have had the privilege of witnessing or even hearing about miraculous healings that have been done in his name. There are, of course, times of great darkness that go through my life. And as one of Jesus' followers, there are times when God hides his presence from me. The Bible is very, very clear that God hides from his children. God hides from his children in order to give them the opportunity to seek him. You cannot seek something unless it is absent. To use an illustration, suppose that I have my watch right here on my arm, and someone came up to me and said, why don't you go seek your watch? Well, that would make absolutely no sense because my watch is right here. I could only seek my watch if in some sense it was lost. You say I had left my watch at my house and someone said, you need to go find your watch. I could drive home and find it and put it back on my wrist. You can't seek something unless it is in some sense absent. And God hides himself from his children, that is, he makes his presence distant, he appears absent to us to give us an opportunity to seek him. And I have had those times in my Christian life. There have been times when God has seemed far away. There have been times when my heart has been cold and my spirit has been dry. There have been times when my prayers do not seem to rise any higher than my head. But the important thing about those times is that I have tried to continue to seek the Lord Jesus and God the Father and the precious Holy Spirit in the midst of periods where God has seemed absent. So the Christian life is a great adventure. It is an adventure where the Lord Jesus himself is with us, There are times when he seems distant from us. In those times, we seek his face just as much as we do when his presence seems real and visible. But not only is the Christian life a wonderful opportunity to walk with Jesus Christ, it is also a tremendous drama because we are in a desperate struggle for good against evil. And I have learned that I must give my life to promoting goodness, truth, and beauty on behalf of the kingdom of God. Should I get that? Go ahead. What we'll do is, uh, you just close the statement in the kingdom of God. Right. And so, when you start your next statement, of sure. where you're going right here at this camera. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're fine. Don't worry all right. about that at all. You tell me when you're ready. Yes. And I have noticed that I must give my life to pursue goodness, truth, and beauty, and fight darkness and falsehoods for the kingdom of God. I have walked with Jesus Christ now for 40 years, and it has been a great privilege to know him and to walk with him. And among the things that I have learned 
in my journey with the Lord Jesus, I would like to share five of them with you. The first lesson I have learned is that Jesus Christ is absolutely peerless. Of all the people in the history of the human race, the impact of Jesus Christ is greater than any single human being who has ever lived. More books have been written about Jesus Christ. More songs have been dedicated to his name. More culture has been produced according to his teachings. More people follow him across the world's cultures than any other leader in the history of the human race. Jesus Christ is by far the most significant figure that we have ever seen in human history. The church historian Yaroslav Pelikan used the following illustration to demonstrate how significant Jesus Christ has been. Pelican said, let us suppose that in world history, every trace of the influence of Jesus is likened to an iron filing. Now take a magnet and pull out all the iron filings. Remove all of the slightest traces of the presence of Jesus Christ in world history, and what do you have left? According to Pelican, you would have very, very little left, especially in the history of the Mideast and the West, where the gospel has been taken uh, early in the history of the Christian church. The influence of Jesus Christ is by far the single greatest influence of any figure in the history of the world. And that means that following Jesus Christ is the greatest privilege of following anyone that you could possibly imagine. Now, sometimes people will say, it's fine if you follow Jesus Christ, but I, I follow Muhammad, or I follow Allah, or I follow Buddha, or some other religion. And many times what I will do in that situation is I will tell them a story about a meat lover. A meat lover is someone who loves to eat meat. Suppose I came across someone who claimed that they were a meat lover and they were eating an old piece of meat that had been dried out and left out on a table for three days and it had no juice in it, no flavor, and it was beginning to get very sour. But they were eating this old, dried out, sour piece of meat. And suppose that I came to them and I had just cooked a fresh warm, hot, sizzling piece of, of uh, steak or lamb, and I came to the individual and said, well, you're a meat lover. Why don't you eat this piece of meat that I've just prepared with seasonings on it and throw that old, dry, sour piece of meat away? Now, what if the person said, no, thank you. I want to continue eating this old, dry piece of meat. In that case, that person would have told me something very, very important. I would learn that that person is not really a meat lover. If the person were a meat lover and was eating a poor piece of meat, they would immediately get rid of it when a better piece of meat came along. Instead of being a meat lover, what that person loves really 
is old, dried, soured pieces of meat. Now, by the same token, if someone says to me, I'm a God seeker, I seek to know and to serve and to love God, but they are following the teachings of Buddha or Confucius or of Islam or Judaism, and they have an opportunity to have the real piece of meat, the real steak, the real full expression of God in Jesus Christ, and if they say no to that, what they're telling me is they're not really a God seeker. Instead, what they really are is concerned to please their friends, to maintain their own safety, to protect their role in their family and their community and their culture, and maintaining their connection to their culture and to their family is more important to them than being a God seeker. Because Jesus Christ is the full expression of God to the human race. And anyone who would say no to him after having an opportunity to find out who he really was is not really a God seeker any more than that person who continued to eat that old piece of meat when presented with a real piece of fresh meat would not turn from it and take the freshly cooked dinner. Jesus Christ is the most significant person in the history of the human race. The second lesson I have learned is that the history of God's people is the history of the richest, most vibrant, most wonderful community of people the world has ever seen. Have God's people who follow Jesus made mistakes into the past? Of course they have. There have been times when God's people have refused to obey Jesus' teachings. They have claimed to be followers of Jesus, but they have murdered, they have stolen, they have denied their Lord by the things they've done. Has God's people made mistakes in the past? Yes. But if you look at where God's people have sought to honor Jesus Christ, you will discover that the history of the people of Jesus' disciples is the history of the richest, most exciting, most vibrant people of any movement in the history of the world, including the history of communism, including the history of Islam, including the history of Buddhism and Hinduism, as fine as these other traditions may be in their own ways. There is absolutely no comparison between the history, say, of the Communist Party or the history of those who follow Hinduism compared to the history of those who have followed Jesus Christ. In the Christian community, we have Justin Martyr, we have Athanasius, we have St. Augustine, we have Boethius, we have John of the Cross, we have Teresa of Avila, we have Thomas Aquinas, we have St. Anselm, we have John Calvin and Martin Luther, and the list goes on and on and on. Johann Sebastian Bach, Handel, some of the greatest artists like Michelangelo who have ever lived dedicated their work to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has inspired and developed 
the richest community in the history of the world. And that means for me, who get to be his follower, I have the honor and the privilege of being a part of the most exciting, the most wonderful group of people in the history of the world. And if you are watching this right now, and you are a follower of Jesus, you are my brother or my sister, and you and I are tied together because of our love with Jesus Christ, and we are a part of the most exciting movement that has ever been formed in the history of the human race. The third thing I've learned is that it is harder not to follow Jesus Christ than it is to follow Him. Is it hard to follow Jesus Christ? Sometimes, indeed, it is. Why? Because if we follow Jesus Christ, we have the world, the flesh, and the devil against us. And there are times when we have to resist temptation. There are times when demons seek to influence us and resist us. And there are times when the world in which we live tries to draw us away from being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So there is a certain hardship in following Jesus Christ, including the hardship of martyrdom, which is something that could happen to any of us as one of Jesus' followers. But while there is a certain difficulty in following Jesus Christ, it is far more difficult not to follow Jesus Christ. Let me explain what I mean by this. The teachings of Jesus were given to us because they described the way God made us to function. Think about an automobile for a minute that you drive on the street. When you drive an automobile, it works best if you drive it on paved roads, if possible. It is difficult to drive an automobile through a bumpy field. But it is impossible to drive an automobile on the bottom of the ocean. Now, can you imagine people taking their automobiles, driving them into the ocean, and trying to drive them on the bottom of the ocean? Now, why is that not a good idea? I think the answer is obvious. That is not the way cars or automobiles were made to function. They were not designed to work on the bottom of the ocean. They were designed to work best when they're being driven on paved roads. In the same way, God designed you and me to function best when we are following the teachings of Jesus. To follow Jesus' teachings is actually, as Jesus himself taught us, the restful path. His commandments are not heavy, says the Apostle John. And Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest comes, actually, from living according to the teachings of Jesus. If you learn to love your enemies, that is a lot easier than hating them. For example, if you hate your enemies, they're constantly in your mind. They're bothering you. You argue with them. You can't forget about them. You can't get them off your mind, and in a very unusual way, your enemies control you. But if you learn to love and to release your enemies, and to release justice into God's hands if they've harmed you, and seek to learn to love them, it is a lot easier than it is to hate them. And so I have learned 
that following Jesus Christ is actually easier than not following him. So while I would agree that sometimes it's difficult to be Jesus' disciple, I would want to insist that it's actually a lot easier to be his disciple than it is not to be his disciple. The fourth lesson I've learned is this. The way to be happy is to learn to give yourself to other people for Jesus' sake. Jesus made a very, very unusual statement in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, you must deny yourself, take up your cross every day, and follow me. And then he went on to say, whoever gains his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, what Jesus is teaching is that if you want to be happy, you don't want to spend all of your time trying to make everything focus on you. If you go through life and you are only worried about yourself, if you treat other people as mere possessions for your own well-being, if you don't care for others but all you care about is your own happiness, you will end up becoming a shriveled person. You will end up becoming a person that loses happiness and doesn't know how to function. No one will like you and you will be very, very lonely. However, if you learn to give your life away to other people for Christ's sake, then you will learn that there is something more important in this life than being happy. Namely, caring and serving for others for the name of the Lord Jesus himself. As you learn to get good at giving your life to other people, you will not be as concerned with whether or not you are happy. And you will actually turn out to be happier if you're giving your life away to other people than you would be if you spent all your time trying to be happy. <clears throat> so there are really two paths in life. There's a path where you try to focus on your own happiness, which is elusive. If you take that path, you most likely will not be happy. The other path is a path where you learn to give your life away to other people for Jesus' sake. If you do that, you learn not to care as much about being happy because you're too absorbed with learning how to serve others. And you will end up being happier if you give your life away to others than you would be if you tried to focus on being happy. So far what I've done is I've explained to you four lessons that have meant a great deal to me in my journey as Jesus' disciple. There is the lesson that Jesus Christ is the single greatest person in the history of the human race. The second lesson is that God's people, when they have followed Jesus and aren't making mistakes, is the greatest people in the history of the world, and I have the privilege of being among them, that following Jesus Christ may be hard, but it's far harder not to follow him. And finally, that the way to be happy is to not worry about being happy, but to give your life serving others for Jesus' sake, and happiness will take care of itself. The final lesson that I have learned as one of Jesus' followers is that God 
is a very real Abba Father who wants to be an intimate daddy to me. Jesus and Paul called God Abba in the Scriptures. In Jesus' day, the term Abba was the term little children used for their father. It was an affectionate family term. In America, the equivalent term to Abba would be Daddy or Papa. A little four-year-old child would say, Daddy, can I sit on your lap? Or Papa, would you come and play with me? When Jesus used the term Abba of God, he meant to emphasize that while God is the transcendent, omnipotent Lord and Creator of heaven and earth, and while God is holy and deserves our fear and our reverence and awe, He is at the same time imminent, close. He is so close that He desires us to treat Him as our daddy or our papa or our father and to crawl up into His lap and to experience His tender Father care for us on a daily basis. The New Testament tells us that we love God because He first loved us. And that means to me that if I'm going to learn how to love God, I have to learn how to receive His love for me first. I cannot take time in self-condemnation and in being ashamed of my failures and in judging myself. Because when I judge myself and condemn myself and I'm afraid of my failures, I have rejected the forgiveness and the mercy that is mine through the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. No, God is not now a God of judgment and condemnation toward me. He may discipline me if I go astray, but His discipline is always loving and affectionate. It is not a condemning discipline. What I have learned then is that God wants to be my papa, my father, my daddy. He wants an intimate love affair with me. May I ask you a question? Do you know of any God in any religion of the world where God wants his children to call him Papa or Daddy and wants to establish a warm, intimate love relationship with his little children like a little child loves his earthly Daddy or Papa? I do not know of any such faith. But the God of the Bible is a God who wants his children to view him as Abba, Daddy. What I've done so far is I've explained to you my own journey as Jesus' follower, and I have tried to describe to you five lessons that I have learned in following him. I'd like to close our time together by giving you three areas of growth that I believe are important for the life of discipleship. If you study the book of Acts, and then if you study the early church fathers from 100 A.D. up until the middle of the 300s A.D., you will discover that in the book of Acts and in the early church, there were three things that were central in the church's mind as it went about trying to produce disciples. Number one was the cultivation of the life of the mind. 
It has been said that the church at one time could outthink her critics. And it was an important part of the book of Acts and of the early church that it learned what it believed and why it believed what it believed. And we will explore this theme in later sessions in our series. But I emphasize right now that a part of the Christian life is a life of learning to love God with all of our mind and to think about the world the way God thinks about the world. This would imply, among other things, that you must develop a Christian worldview. A worldview is a way of seeing all of reality through the Scriptures. It is a way of looking at art and science and money and economics and social customs, politics, morality, all of life under the teachings of the Lord Jesus. The first thing that the early church did was to teach a Christian worldview, how to think biblically, how to defend your faith, how to know what you believe and why you believe it. May I suggest to you then that it is very important for us who follow Jesus to foster a vibrant intellectual life in our churches and in our communities where we engage in reading and in conversation and reflection about theology and about the things that we believe as Christians and why we believe them. The second thing that was of emphasis in the early church in the book of Acts and the first centuries of the church was the formation of character and a tender heart toward God and others. I sometimes call this spiritual formation. But we find in the book of Acts and we find in the desert fathers of the early church an emphasis placed upon the formation of a strong character filled with integrity and of a heart that is tender toward God and tender toward others. Among other things, this means learning to gain control of our emotions and to feel the kind of feelings that God has. We should hate the things God hates. We should love the things that God loves. And we should feel a great sense of affection over the things about which God is affectionate. The second area, then, of emphasis in growing as a disciple is to concentrate your attention on cultivating a tender heart, a heart that is generous and warm and feels deeply. Cultivating character, a person who has integrity even when no one is watching. This is the second important area of cultivation of the Christian life. The third important area that was an emphasis in the book of Acts, and you can also find uh, in the early church, is an emphasis on the kingdom power of the Holy Spirit and the manifest presence of the kingdom of God. The book of Acts in the early church emphasized signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit. And the New Testament church was a church that was able to heal. It received prophetic utterances and words of knowledge from the Spirit that it was able to give. And it was able to defeat demons in divine encounters with the demonic and cast them out. I believe that there is an outbreak all around the world today of the power of God's kingdom in signs and wonders and miracles. 
And it is a part of the community of the Lord Jesus that those of us who are his followers learn how to live in his kingdom under the power of his Holy Spirit and to heal the sick, to receive prophetic revelation and words of knowledge that we can give, and to learn how to defeat the devil by way of the demonic. It is three, these three legs I call the kingdom triangle. And it is the three legs of the kingdom triangle, the life of the mind, the formation of an inner heart and character, and the ability to manifest the power of God's kingdom and His Holy Spirit that I believe provide a balance to the church. If you have one of these without the other two, the church will be imbalanced. A church that values the life of the mind without the heart and the power of the Spirit will become dry and dead. A church that values the heart without valuing the power of the Spirit and the life of the mind will become unstable and too emotional. And a church that values the power of the Spirit without valuing the life of the mind and the heart can become absorbed with power and can become doctrinally off balance. It is in the balance of these three that we find the path forward. In our time together, I've sought to tell you about my own journey from a little boy in the Midwest in the United States who did not know Jesus Christ to a person who has now followed the Lord Jesus for 40 years. I've tried to share with you five reflections that have been important to me in my journey as Jesus' follower, and I have shared with you three things I believe that are absolutely fundamental to keep in balance if we are going going to grow as Jesus' followers. May I say that it's the most marvelous privilege of my life to claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and I hope that you will join me in rededicating your life to being a good steward of God's grace through the gospel of the Lord Jesus.